Our second reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verses 14 through 27. And when the hour came, Jesus reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who is going to do this. A dispute also arose among them, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are, are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. The word of the Lord. We've been looking at the Gospel of Luke for months now, and we're actually nearing the end. Uh, for me, that's a sad thing. I love the Gospel of Luke. If you've not read through a Gospel, that's one of the ones I would push you to. Go read the Gospel of Luke beginning to end. You could do it in about two hours or spread it out over the course of a couple of days. Um, it's a great way to understand Jesus in the fullness of his context, which is both historical and a biblical historical, and really allow you to enter into seeing who this Jesus is. So we're near the very end of Jesus' life in our account where we've read Luke chapter 22, and it's one of the most famous passages where Jesus is, uh, is there at table with his disciples in the Last Supper. The church has been built on that with communion as a regular process of what's going on, but I want us to dig in a little bit deeper today to understand all the things that go on behind the Last Supper so that we can understand what God might be showing us about Jesus and what he's offering us through Jesus as a result. So they're here in the final week, and Jesus tells the disciples, he tells two of them, Peter and John, go and prepare the Passover. So what's happening is every, every day, they're there near Jerusalem, but they don't stay in Jerusalem. They stay outside in Bethany a couple of miles away. And the reason they don't is because Jerusalem is just not big enough, and there are so many people. Jerusalem in the ancient world was about a quarter the size, maybe even a fifth the size of the town of Vienna. But instead of 15,000 people as a population, it had a population in the tens of thousands, except on Passover week, when the population swelled to hundreds of thousands. One guy even speculated, one historian, that it was over two million that, sh that shoved themselves into that small village of Jerusalem that was a big capital city in that day and age. So Jesus says, go and prepare where we may eat the Passover inside the city walls of Jerusalem. And they're excited. 
It's an incredibly pulsating time in Jerusalem. If you arrived on that day, I mean, I don't know if you've ever been in one of those incredibly crowded places like downtown D.C. during the 4th of July or in any place that's celebrating Carnival or something like that. So this is what Jerusalem is like in that place, and it is the highest point of the year for the average Jerusalem or average Jewish person in that day and age. It was the national, religious, cultural, and family high point of the year. We don't have anything that equates to it. Now, some of you come from families that have traditions, like your extended family always goes to this particular beach and has one of these beach houses, and every year you do it, and so everyone looks forward to it. That's your family tradition. Some religious traditions have something akin to that. I've talked to somebody who's a Coptic Christian about how Holy Week for Coptic Christians is incredibly rich and powerful as every day, all day, all families are there at the church, sung liturgies, all this food. It's this whole week-long celebration of worshiping God. But we don't really have things equivalent to Passover in our culture. It was the national, religious, and cultural high point of the year. And it built up to the feast. When you celebrated the Passover yourself with your family, You took lamb and had it sacrificed at the temple. You roasted that lamb with bitter herbs. You had cups of wine and unleavened bread. And all of this created a meal that wasn't just a regular meal like we have at Thanksgiving. It was a meal filled with all sorts of traditional richness because it was evoking all that God had done for the people throughout history. The liturgy was called the Haggadah, and basically it had a father, usually, a patriarch, a head who was sitting at the head of the table and everyone around him, and a son would ask, why are we eating this lamb? Why this cup of wine? Why this unleavened bread? And the, the liturgy for the whole family was built around this call and response where the father explained all that God had done. All of this was built around a question and answer explaining what has God done, let me tell you. And so I think it's actually helpful for us to dig a little bit deeper back into that history so that we understand it a little bit better ourselves. Now, you know the story of Moses and Egypt because of Yul Brenner and Charlton Heston, and that's not actually that far off, but you know, you have that in the back of your head or some modern version of that. But basically the story goes like this. For 400 years, the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt. 400 years they were enslaved in Egypt. Generation after generation, you were born a slave. You knew that your kids would be born a slave and your grandkids would be born a slave. It is a horrible existence to be held in slavery. But the Lord raises up a deliverer named Moses. Moses was nothing special except that God chose him. And he says, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him, set my people free, let them go and worship me. Moses goes and tells Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, no way, I'm not doing that, so the Lord brings the plagues, right? The 10 plagues that come upon Egypt, the water of the Nile is turned into blood, there's darkness, there's frogs, there's all these locusts come, and each of those plagues is a judgment on the gods of Egypt. They worshiped the sun, it goes dark. They worshiped the Nile, it's turned to blood. They worship their crops, they're destroyed. But time and again, Pharaoh will not let the people go. And so one final plague is brought. And we hear it in uh, Exodus chapter 12. In Exodus chapter 12, the Lord says, and this is before the section that we read, verses 12 and 13. The Lord says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night or this night. 
and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So God is bringing a final judgment. And the judgment is the death of the firstborn sons in every house in the land of Egypt. It's a final judgment on the gods of Egypt, which seems a little confusing. But in the midst of that judgment, God does what he always does with judgment is he offers mercy as well, right? He offers a way out. And the way out was to take a lamb, and it's described, it was described in the reading, to take a lamb, sacrifice the lamb, take the blood from the lamb, and put it on your door frames, like the outside of your house. And then you and your entire family were supposed to go inside, eat the roasted lamb, along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. But if the Lord, when he was going through the land of Egypt, saw the blood on the door, he would pass over that house and go to bring death and judgment on the next house. And if that house had blood on the door from the lamb, the Lord would pass over that one and go to the next one. They were to eat it with their family, eat it prepared to be delivered. They were to make unleavened bread, which meant you didn't have the time for it to rise. It was also the bread of the poor and slaves. And it later became, according to Deuteronomy, you're the bread of our affliction. And when you had the Haggadah, the, the liturgy of the Passover, it was this is the bread of our affliction because we were enslaved in Egypt and the Lord delivered us. This is the bread of our affliction, but God delivered us out of that affliction. So they were to celebrate this meal that night and wait for the Lord to bring his judgment on the land. And the Lord did. In verse 29 and 30, we read, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And the Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Now, don't gloss over this. From the firstborn of Pharaoh to the firstborn of the captive in the dungeon. Judgment and death came to everyone, regardless of your status, your wealth, whether you were a king or a slave. Not only that, there was no indication that the Jewish people, the Hebrews, were going to escape. Judgment was coming whether you were an Egyptian or a Hebrew. Death was going to fall on every single house. Now, if you were a Hebrew in that day and age, and you said the Lord is going to deliver us, but he's going to bring judgment, you would say, great, bring judgment on them. They've been our oppressors. They're the evil people. They're in charge. They're in power. Get them, Lord. But the Lord says, I will bring judgment on everyone. Why us? What did we do? We're the innocent ones. The Lord is declaring there's no one who is innocent. Judgment falls on all. The pagan Egyptians, who were the oppressors, and the Hebrew people, his chosen people, the religious ones, falls on the wealthy and on the slave, falls on the king and the one in prison. God's judgment falls on everyone. 
but his mercy is available to anyone who will receive it. Tim Keller summarizes what happened that night. In every home that night, there would either be a dead child or a dead lamb. But then the question for us postmoderns is why? Isn't this all kind of weird? Why are we killing firstborn sons? Why a lamb and their blood is going to protect us? None of this makes sense to us today. And it's partly because we are postmodern, individualistic people. In the ancient Near East, and for Israel, they had a biblical understanding of the world, not a postmodern understanding, and they were corporate, communal, collectivist people, not individualists. And it makes all the difference for understanding what God is doing and why he's bringing about his salvation in this way and how it points to Jesus. So let's assume some of the things or look into some of the things that would have been common in that day and age in their understanding of what God was doing. The first thing to understand and why God brings judgment on Egypt and on the nation in this way and on firstborn sons and on the lamb and the blood and all that is it goes back to the fall in Genesis, right? So if you don't know the story, we, we rehearse it every so often, but in Genesis, God calls the man and the woman in the garden to not eat of the tree in the middle of the garden. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. And of course, the serpent says, come on, you're not surely going to die. Go ahead and eat. And the funny thing about it is there's nothing inherently vice-looking about eating some fruit. Nobody was harmed by eating the fruit. The only thing wrong with it was the Lord said it was. And because ultimately it was a question of who is Lord? Who is God? We talk about it here often. Sin is not just vices or immorality. Sin is rejecting God and choosing to be your own Lord and Savior. It is choosing to live apart from God and saying, I don't need you or your ways. So Adam and Eve eat the fruit, rejecting God and his ways, choosing to be Lord and God on their own, but they don't die. Well, they don't die in the way that we think we want them to die, right? We want them to just be snuffed out right then, whoosh, but they don't. But what happens is the Lord, it says, drives them out of Eden, out of the presence of the Lord. You want to be apart from me? Fine, be apart from me. There's a death that is greater. There's a death that is worse than physical death. It is to be apart from God. Entering into their lives was spiritual death, ultimately physical death, and the certainty of eternal death and apartness from God if God does not intervene. And so every human being lives under that. They live under the judgment of being apart from God and deserving death. All of us owe a debt. The book of Romans summarizes it pretty quickly. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. And Romans 6.23, the wages, the payment for your sin is death. You want to live apart from God, you will live apart from God forever. We all know this inside. We all know that we fall short. Many of us are really good at guilt. <laughs> we know we're guilty. 
And even if you're not the sort of person who's constantly guilty, you're aware of this. You can't even live up to your own standards. If you took everything you ever criticized somebody else about, all the ways that you said they should do this, the ways you look down on other people, even the ones that are in your head that you didn't actually verbalize, if that was the standard, if the standard wasn't the Ten Commandments, wasn't God's moral laws, if the standard was just your critique of other humans, you would fall short of your own commands. You would not want your life movie played based on your own set of rules. We all fall short. We are all owing a debt. We all fall short. How else do you explain our constant need to strive to achieve? We're constantly trying to get recognition, to show how good we are, to achieve things with our career, with our family. We constantly have this need inside of us to prove our worth. We know we don't measure up. Now, we might not use the language of judgment. We might talk about, I have low self-esteem, or I'm simply trying to make the most of my life by achieving these things. But it's our modern way of talking about the same idea of you're simply under judgment. You deserve death, you owe a debt, and you know it. That's why judgment falls on Egypt, the rich and the poor, the king and the slave, the Hebrew and the Egyptian. But why the son? Why sons are killed and why does a lamb take its place? Well, this goes back to Abraham, right? So if you don't know the story of Abraham, Abraham is the forefather of the Hebrew peoples, and in Genesis 12 and 15, the Lord makes a covenant promise to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, and through you I will bless all the peoples of the earth. But in order to be a great nation, Abraham had to have a kid, a son, somebody to carry on the name. He didn't. For decades, he didn't have a kid until he was in his, you know, like 100 years old, right? And then he has a son, and the son is Isaac. And then God calls in the debt, the debt that he owes, the debt that his whole family owes. And in Genesis 22, he says, take your son, your, your, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and offer him as a sacrifice. Now God's getting really weird. This is absolutely horrible and unthinkable. We actually don't have a category for this. This is one of those things that if you're a doubter, a skeptic about Christianity or the, the Bible, you read that and you're like, this doesn't make sense. Why would God ever do this? This has nothing to do with a God that I want to believe in. But partly we're looking at it from a postmodern individualistic culture. Things are sometimes reversed, and I don't want us to be biased in that, right? For instance, how many of you have ever moved away from your family of origin and not lived in the same city? Probably most everyone has for at least a year or two. If you were in that ancient world, people would have asked you, why, what happened? Why did you get exiled to another city? It's worse than death. You had to go all the way down to Charlottesville or Blacksburg or, or you know, Richmond. I mean, that's, that's horrible. They don't understand. They would not understand our desire to be individualistic and live our own lives. They would think about it as a curse worse than death. Okay, so sidetrack there. Understand that Abraham doesn't think that what God asks him to do is unthinkable. Why not? 
One, Abraham understood the fall. He understood Genesis 2 and 3. He understood that because of sin, all deserve judgment and death, including him. Secondly, this was a collectivist, corporate, family culture, not individualistic. So honor and shame and sin was not an individual thing. It was a family or clan thing. Meaning, you didn't just say, oh, that's, that's just my, my cousin. He's crazy. I don't know. I, I'm not like him. Or that's my dad, but I'm not like my dad. We kind of push ourselves distant from the black sheep in the family. In that culture, that didn't happen. The sin of any member of your family was a sin on all of you. The shame of your uncle or your child or your mother was your shame. And as a result, when judgment was going to fall on one person in your family, it was going to fall on all of you. So Abraham understood the fall. He understood that all of them were guilty and all of his family was guilty for any of their sin. And he understood the role of firstborn sons in that ancient culture. Now, in some of our cultures, we have this elevation of a firstborn child or there's a child that the parents love too much or the firstborn son is elevated. But we're missing out on the understanding of that in that ancient culture. The entire focus of the family was on the firstborn son. See, it was a collectivist family culture, so everything you did was for the family and the clan. It was a patriarchal culture, so things moved from the father to his firstborn son. It was a culture in which land was so vitally important, and land was passed on from father to firstborn son. It meant that your identity as a community, as a people, your status, how high or low you were, and all of your hopes were based on a firstborn son. Through the firstborn son, the entire family's hopes were placed and found. In other words, firstborn sons were objects of worship. So why the death of Isaac? One, because of sin. There was a debt that Abraham and his whole family owed. They were all sinners and judgment was going to fall on all of them for any one of their sins. And God was asking Abraham, who or what is your God? In what are you trusting? Me or your firstborn son? Abraham and Isaac go up to the mountain and Isaac asks, Father, where is the lamb that we might offer the sacrifice? And Abraham, Abraham responds with great faith, the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide the ram. And Abraham goes up and he has the knife and he's ready to strike his son and the Lord stops him. He says, now I know you trust me. And there in the thicket was a ram for the offering to take the place of Isaac so that death for sin could happen. A substitute sacrifice was provided. Okay, so hopefully this helps make sense a little bit of that first Passover. See, what God is doing is he is rescuing Israel from slavery by bringing judgment for sin upon everyone who rejects God, but he's offering grace and salvation through a substitute, a lamb, and its blood sacrificed in your place. Israel, years and years later, looked back on that climactic event 
That first Passover is the time when God delivered them. He rescued and redeemed them. They were deserving of death, but they are given grace and freedom because they put their trust in a sacrificed lamb and its blood on their door, and they trusted God to deliver them out. And so every year, they performed this feast, this Passover feast, where they remembered what God had done. And remembering in the Hebrew culture is not like our remembering. Our remembering is cognitive recollection of something that happened. Oh, years ago, this happened. But a Hebrew understanding of remembering had the power to bring what happened in the past to bear on your present. You understood that what God did back then by you recalling it was bringing that to bear on your present and affecting your future. Remembering always affected action in a Hebrew understanding of it. It changed their identity, their hopes, their connection to God every year when they went through the process of recalling God's judgment and deliverance of them. All of that is behind what Jesus is doing on that last supper that he has with his disciples. The last supper is a Passover meal. It's his Passover meal with his family, the twelve, Except that when the firstborn son or the sons in the family ask why, when the disciples say, why are we having this Passover? Why the lamb? Why the blood? Why, why the wine? Jesus changes everything. And you can't do that. Everyone knew the parts by heart. This is what happens first and second and third. And you know what this is like. If you've been a part of a family that has traditions, Christmas is usually one of those ones where you have these traditions. In my in-law's family, the kids all go to the top of the steps. We enter grandma and grandpa's house, the kids go to the top of the steps, and then the grandfather goes and looks under the tree that's in the living room, and then comes back and says, hey kids, there aren't any presents, and the kids, oh, yes there are, and they all run down the stairs. There's these weird traditions we do in every family, and you don't know why you do them, but you have to do them. Everyone sitting around the table that night, all the 12 and anyone else there, knew exactly the words that were supposed to be said at the exact right time, when the first cup was to be held up, and when the lamb was to be eaten, and when the bread was to be broken, and all the words that were supposed to go with it. But Jesus gets it completely wrong. He lifts the bread and says, this is my body, which is given for you. It's not the bread of our affliction, the Jews. It's not the bread of our affliction remembering our slavery. This is the bread of my affliction. I am being broken for you. This cup is not the cup of remembering the salvation that God brought to us in Egypt. This is the cup of my blood, the cup of the new covenant, my blood being poured out like the lamb's blood being poured out and spread on your door. And it's my blood, not a lamb's blood, that goes over the door of your life that will protect you from the Lord's judgment. And of course, the interesting thing in all the accounts of the Last Supper is that there's no lamb. In the Passover, the original one, the lamb was the center part. In every Passover meal that was celebrated afterwards, the lamb was the center part. There was no lamb recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Now, some have speculated it's because Jesus didn't have a lamb there, but it's probably more likely that the gospel writers like Luke are giving you what Jesus intended. What Jesus intends is for us to see that he is the lamb. He is the Passover lamb. There's bread, there's wine, and there's him. 
And that story of the lamb is one that goes throughout the history of the Bible. In Isaiah 53, the hope of a Messiah was that he will come and he will be like a lamb led to the slaughter. And Isaiah 53 goes on to talk about how he takes away our sin and bears our sin for us and takes the judgment that we deserve. In the book of Acts, an Ethiopian Jew is riding along reading Isaiah 53, this very same passage, and Philip, the, one of the disciples, says, do you understand what you're reading? Let me tell you about it. It's all about Jesus. Everything that was predicted 700 years before him about a lamb being slaughtered just happened in Jerusalem this past week. And his name is Jesus. He's the lamb that was going to be slaughtered. Peter in 1 Peter says, you were ransomed by the blood of Christ, who is the lamb that was slain for you. John records the Baptist saying, behold the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus doesn't say, no, 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 that's not me. He accepts it because that's the identity he wants you to see him as. And in Revelation, the anticipation of what will be in heaven is all the creatures, all the creatures of earth, all the creatures in heaven declaring worthy is the lamb who was slain. And here is Jesus saying, I am the lamb who is about to be slain for you. And the disciples are like, now it all makes sense. Everything Jesus has been doing makes sense. It all points to all of our hopes as a Jewish people. Everything God had been doing from Genesis to Abraham to Moses to the deliverance to the hopes of Isaiah, it all makes sense. You, Jesus, are the lamb who was slain. It all makes sense. The Passover pointed to you, Jesus. We now get it. Actually, the disciples didn't do that at all. <laughs> what do they do? Their response is, uh, so which of, you, which of us is going to betray you, Jesus? They're trying to figure out who's going to betray Jesus. And it, none of them guessed Judas. They're like, it's probably Peter. He's always screwing up. <laughs> or Bartholomew. Whoever heard of him, he's probably the one. I mean, is he even one of the 12? And then the very next line in verse 24 is, which of us is the greatest? <laughs> Who's going to betray you? Which of us is the greatest? What were you talking about, Jesus? I can't remember. I mean, I'm sure it was cool and all. Everything you were doing, the bread, the wine, that was great. But which of us is the greatest? It's amazing how easily we, we, lose sight of what Jesus is doing, of who he is and what he did. We quickly grab hold of what we want and we push aside what he did. We live for what we're living for, and we push aside who he is. The king is the servant, Jesus says. God dies for us in our place. I'm offering you grace undeserved. Why are you talking about who's the greatest? so easy to push aside Jesus' upside-down kingdom to walk into the desires of our own kingdom. You know, a neat thing about what Jesus is doing here is he's talking about his death the next day. And what Jesus doesn't do is give you a doctrinal treatise on his death. N.T. Wright, the scholar, said, Jesus didn't teach his disciples a theory of his death. He gave them an act to perform and a meal to share. 
he gave them liturgy and prayers and some bread and wine and said, worship and do this. And if we're going to summarize what Jesus is doing here in the Lord's Supper, the thing that we do every week, and there's a reason we do this, is because I think in this process, we are going back to the cross again and again. And we're not theorizing about what Jesus did, we're reenacting what Jesus did, and we're bringing to present, to bear, what Jesus did and does for us. Three things to close about the Lord's Supper. Jesus says, take and eat, take and eat. You you, 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 you must personally take and eat. You must do something with Jesus. This challenges religious superstition and mysticism that just says, well, if I show up, it, it happens to me. Jesus says, no, you gotta do something with me. Take and eat. And he's calling us to feed on him. Feed on Jesus more than food or success or praise more than your career or your kids, feed on him and let him be the food that feeds you. Take and eat. Secondly, we do it all together now. Remember he says to the disciples, pass this around. Here we use a common cup and a common bread and that's not necessary but it is symbolic of what we're intending. Symbolic of being unified as the body of Christ, as one family, and that we are all equally, all equally apart and under judgment, whether we are Hebrew or Egypt, whether we are Pharaoh or slave, we are all equally under judgment. But we're also all saved by grace. Every one of us come as beggars. Every one of us is welcomed as kings. And this challenges our individualism and our self-righteousness that's constantly trying to measure ourselves against each other. It calls us into community. And third, the Lord's Supper, it's just bread. A sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. And the amazing thing about what God does in Scripture is he's constantly using ordinary things to reveal himself, to bring his presence, his grace, his salvation. So look for God in those ordinary things and recognize that he infuses them with his power and his grace. When God wanted to save us, he didn't save us from afar. He came and walked the earth as a sweaty, smelly, dirty, and bleeding man. This challenges our anti-mystical, anti-mysterious, our need for intellectual satisfaction and everything. And it also tells us this. God uses ordinary stuff, common stuff. He uses bread and oil heated up. and says, this is my body. And that means God wants you just as you are common, ordinary you. Common, ordinary you infused and indwelt by him. And become an agent of grace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, on the night before you died, you gave us a meal, a simple, common meal infused with so much richness the affirmation that judgment that is to come on all of us falls on you. And because of your death, because of your blood poured out, your body broken, we are forgiven, healed, set free. Oh, the great hope that we have in trusting in the Lamb who was slain, in whose name we pray. Amen.